This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. I'm talking to Jennifer H. Dorsey, now known as Mother Jen. She was ordained as a priest on Sunday at St. Boniface Episcopal Church in Gilderland. As an adult, she traveled the country studying and teaching history and ended up back in the Northeast as a professor of American history at Siena College. As church-going declines nationwide, Dorsey sees anxiety levels rising and doesn't think yoga or diet programs are adequate for managing that anxiety. Religion, she says, is such an important tool for me to feel grounded and safe and protected by God who is steadfast in his kindness and love. So um, it is, um, it's mystical. (laughs) So um, you, the service has um, been predetermined, right? This is a service that the Episcopal Church, if we have something called the Book of Common Prayer and you can read um, the elements of the service. You can see how it's going to lay out and take place. Um, it is led by the bishop. Um, and the first part of the service, the candidate for ordination to the priesthood is presented by the community that has sponsored her. And that was the first part of the service. Um, and in this case, it was St. Boniface. Boniface Episcopal Church in Gilderland that had sponsored me, and they presented me to the bishop as somebody worthy of this ministry. Um, and then the service proceeds um, with prayers that are led by the community for the benefit of the the person who's to be ordained. We're praying that God will bless this ministry and. Um, bless my family and bless whatever congregation or ministry um, community I end up um, serving in the future. Um, and then it moves into a more traditional kind of church service. There are readings um, from scripture that are specifically speak to the role of a clergy person in the Episcopal Church and um, a sermon from the bishop. And then at that point, um, the things mystical begin to happen. Um, the bishop um, invites the clergy person and any other ordained clergy in the church um, to come and stand around me. Or and I, I think there's a photo of this that was collected um, and lay hands on me. And as they place their hands on me, they pray that the Spirit of God will um, descend upon me and make me a priest, <laughs> accept me as, um, as a, a, a minister of the word of Jesus Christ um, and a pastor to the faithful believers. Um, and Yes, so that happens. <laughs> it's really quite extraordinary. Um, and when that is done, um, 
we actually, um, I, I'm presented with um, a series of gifts, and each of these gifts um, represents a different piece of my ministry. So um, only in the Episcopal Church, only ordained clergy can celebrate the Eucharist, um, Holy Communion. And so I'm presented with the vestments of a clergy person that I would wear when celebrating Holy Eucharist for the congregation, um, as well as a Bible to remind me of my duty to continue to read and learn um, scripture so that I can faithfully and accurately represent it to the people that I serve. Um, I was also presented with a what's called a patent and a chalice. The chalice, um, these are two, um, um, I'm saying instruments, <laughs> in a cup and a plate that um, one uses to prepare and serve um, Holy Communion. And, um, and then at that point, I think I was presented to the congregation as the newly ordained Reverend Jennifer Dorsey. Um, in the Episcopal Church, we say um, Mother Jen, Mother Jennifer. That would be my title. Um, and then next, we, um, the bishop celebrated Eucharist on behalf of the congregation. And I stood beside him um, to be part of, to, you know, that I didn't actually celebrate. Or we call it co-celebrating. I stood alongside the bishop. Um, as he prepared the Eucharist and then distributed the Eucharist. And then at the very end, um, we would come to the end of the service. Um, the bishop invited me to give a blessing to any member of the congregation who came forward and asked for it. So that was the chronology of the event. Oh, <laughs> as well as I can no, that's wonderful. <laughs> you, I felt like we were there. I have goosebumps. My goodness, thank you for that description. So I would like to know how it is you got to this point in your life, because if we can start way back at the beginning with your family, how you were raised, it's just such an unusual path for a woman to have pursued. I looked up a bit of history, and I read that in the mid-1970s, there was this radical group of women known as the Philadelphia Eleven that were, you know, irregularly ordained as priests in the Episcopal Church, but it was, you know, a real push, and that's not all that long ago. And there's still, I would imagine, are very, very few women um, that are called to do that. So could you just kind of start us at the beginning of your life and, and tell us a bit about, you know, what was your family like as you were growing up? Were they religious? Or just describe your parents to so, us. Yeah, Melissa, so actually you use the right language. You talked about um, being called to ordain ministry, and that is exactly the language that we use in the church, that um, people don't necessarily choose to be um ordained clergy, whether they're deacons or they're priests, um, we believe that God basically calls us to this role, um, that everybody, ha every Christian has some responsibility for advancing the mission of the church, but um, some people are called to different roles. And um, I can tell you that I grew up in northern New Jersey, and I grew up in 
um, grew up in the Episcopal Church, and I was a child in the 70s. <laughs> so <laughs> the politics of ordination, you know, men or women didn't resonate with me at all. I didn't know anything about that. But I um, I always loved church. Like, I, I was a geek about church. And even as a child, I felt like this was something um, that was meant for me, honestly, which um, in retrospect, I'm like, I'm recognizing that that was when the call to serve the church as an ordained clergy person first, you know, came into my my head and my being. Um, so even as a child, even, you felt this. Yeah. Yeah. Even as a child, I felt like this was home and this is where I'm meant to be. And, you know, I participated as much as I could in worship, you know, that was appropriate for a child. Um, as a young adult, I left New Jersey, you know, I traveled all over the country for my career. I'm a college professor. Um, and so as a graduate student and a college professor, I serve the church in different ways and different places and different times. And the thought of becoming clergy had rattled in my head, you know, at different points in my life. Um, and more than once, I, I was like, I should be doing this, but then decided that I had other plans for my life <laughs> and I wasn't ready to... Uh, do that. And then about, I had lived in Arizona until I moved to New York. And when I came back East, when I moved back to New York, um, the desire the to, to pursue this just grew stronger and stronger. And then finally, a couple of years ago, I decided that I was going to put my name forward as a candidate for ordination. And it's a lengthy process, Melissa. You don't just like wake up one morning and decide to um, be ordained clergy. Um, the church, the Episcopal Church has a, a very specific process. Um, you have to be sponsored by your congregation, by your, by your own rector. Um, you present your credentials to a committee. The committee reviews your current credentials and assigns a team to you to work with you, to help you make sense of what you believe God is calling you to do and help you determine, you know, what skills you need to develop further. Um, you have to go to seminary. <laughs> Although increasingly in the 21st century, that is easier and easier um, because there are now more ways to do this work online, which is what I did. Um, and yeah, and then eventually after you've earned your degree and um, completed internships and training and mentoring, um, the bishops in our church make judgments about who is to be ordained. And I had the approval of the bishop to be ordained. And so, well, congratulations. Uh, in June, Thank you. Um, in June, I was actually ordained the first time to the diaconate. It's um, I was originally Deacon Jen, and but it was always understood that that was a transitional role. And then in December, I was well, as you know, <laughs> ordained to the priesthood. 
Well, I you mentioned that you're a history professor, and I looked up your bio on the Siena College website, and I just wonder if you could talk a little about your work as a history professor. You write in, in that um, online description that you're a community engaged historian and also um, how you encourage your students um, to reach their fullest potential, not only as learners, but as citizens. And I just wondered if you Mm. could talk a little about both of those things, kind of unpack them for us, being community engaged and also something that I think too often is not taught anymore, the idea of how to be a good citizen. And then if you have any thoughts on how that might relate also to your calling and now to your becoming a priest. So... Well, that's a whole bunch of questions. I know. I'll I'll unpack (laughs) it a little. Let's start with the community-engaged historian. What does that mean? Yeah. Yeah, let's go there. Let's start there. So so I um, came to Siena College from Arizona State University. And um, while I was at Arizona State University, um, we were at a university that was very much talking about how can we put our citizens to work to serve the community? And I was introduced to that way of teaching and thinking about higher education um, at ASU. And then when I came to Siena College, um, well, I came to Siena College in part because I realized that this was a place where I could actualize that um, as a history professor in ways that I probably couldn't in ASU. I mean, I'm a, I'm a trained historian who focuses on the age of the American Revolution and what's called the early republic, which is the first 50 years after the American Revolution. So colonial America, revolutionary America, the writing of the Constitution, you know, how did the first two or three generations of Americans experience all of that? Um, and this was, you know, as much as I like the idea of putting students to work in the community to advance history education and history knowledge, um, you know, it wasn't going to be easy in Phoenix, Arizona. But here, this place is tailor-made for it. Right? <laughs> so I came to Siena College um, to teach colonial revolutionary America. And I um, was also charged with building up a program that would put students to work in the community. Um, And what that really means practically is encouraging students, particularly history majors, to do internships or do strategic projects, work on strategic projects for nonprofit organizations in the capital region that advance history education. So um, over the years, I put students to work at Saratoga Battlefield, um, at um, Shaker Heritage Society, um, at the um, Albany Public Library. And basically what I do is I reach out to nonprofits, um, who museums and libraries, and ask them, you know, can you think of some sort of strategic project that students could work on that would help you to better deliver capital region history to general audiences, right? I've had students transcribe manuscripts. I've had students write tours and curriculum. Um, I've had students um, 
these are the kinds of projects that my mm-hmm. students do. And all of it is meant to um, help students think more broadly about um, the value of history and history education um, to help them think about how they can start putting their knowledge and skills that they have to work for the community. And in my case, specifically um, in the community to help people learn local history. Um, yeah, so that's yeah. I think that's, that's did I get that? Did you I get everything? Sure did. <laughs> yes, you did. And <laughs> this feeds into the idea of creating not just learners but citizens. If you know, it's it's part yeah. of the um, yeah part of the mix. And I just wonder if this relates, and maybe it doesn't in any way, to the priesthood. In other words, you must have a certain way. I would think being trained as an historian and also as a teacher in looking at how you will function as a priest. Um, I know Siena is very much rooted in the Catholic tradition, and I read as I was trying to prep myself for this interview that the Episcopal Church describes itself as Protestant yet Catholic. And I just wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Um, so, actually, let me go back to the citizenship okay. um, question. Great. What do you want to call it? The question about, yeah. um, you know, I think it's part of a college's mission to encourage our students to not think about active citizenship as limited to voting, mm-hmm. right? We, um, we believe strongly that we are training students um, between our Franciscan tradition and our liberal arts tradition to think of themselves as problem solvers um, and that that starts even before they earn their degree, that they're already a very privileged population <laughs> between, you know, the, the, the quantity of knowledge they have, um, the way they think and the resources that they, ha- they have in our library to help our local community address problems. Um, and so, and we believe as a Roman Catholic institution, as a Christian institution in service, right? And that, mm-hmm. um, so they should be, you know, so we want to encourage them um, to put their problem solving skills to service um, in their community and to advance, you know, the mission of nonprofit organizations in the community. Um, so I feel like those things, in our world, the Siena world, you know, service and advocacy and education all go together and can be put to work in a way that, you know, advances the good of the capital region. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely academics and Christian altruism, if you want to call it that, are integral to um, what we do at Siena College. So, um does that help, Melissa? Yes, I think that's yeah. it. You have just so, so many layers to your answers. I love it. Another thing I wanted to ask you about is I'm sure you're really well aware, um, just about the role of the church in a modern society, because, um, you know, there was a Pew study not long ago that showed just, if you look at their graph, it's just this line heading 
straight down. I mean, it's a steep slope down. Um, the number of people yeah. uh, that consider themselves Christian now, as opposed to those who have no religion at all, or are atheists, or something the question said, nothing in particular. It went from the people mm-hmm. that were born prior to World War II, where 84% of them described themselves as Christians, and 10% were in the a category of sort of no religion. And then the baby boomers, it became 76% and 17 and Gen X, 67% and 25. And the millennials, it's 49% who describe themselves as Christians and 40% who are unaffiliated. So we're almost getting to a point where there's many people that are unchurched as churched. And I just wonder if you have any thoughts on what that means for us as a society or what you as an individual think is important about being part of a church or um, carrying forward in that tradition? Yeah. So, um, so remember, most I've been ordained for a hot 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> but you're a deep thinker. You're a historian and you have a sense of these trends. I know you do. Yeah, so um, I'm not going to propose that I have any, like, clear-cut solutions. I will say that um, I think that um, one thing I can say is that you probably know our, as a culture, our anxiety levels are just beyond the pale, right? Mm -hmm. And um, for me, um, I just feel like religion has always played such an important part of my, it's been such an important tool for me to feel grounded and safe and protected and, um, you know, by a by God, who is, you know, steadfast in his kindness and love towards those who turn to him. And I think for me, religion, my my faith has just been really essential for keeping my own anxiety levels down, right? I mean, people who, I feel very concerned for people who think that they can address their anxiety um, with, you know, like yoga, um, managing their diet or what have you. Um, because those things are never really going to be able to do that. Um, and so it seems strange. And I, 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 let's see. Um, Sorry, I'm awesome. <laughs> no, <laughs> I through it all. Um, I, you know, I for me, like I, I, I feel like there's a a relationship between the lack of spiritual development in our population and the rising anxiety in our population. Um, and I think, um, you know, my prayer for humanity is that they come to recognize that the closer that they can get to God, the the more comforted and loved they'll feel, and um, there. That's just a wonderful. And that can only be. 
a wonderful <laughs> closing message. I usually ask people for their closing thoughts because I know you had a busy schedule and our half hour is up, but I think you've just given us our closing thought. Do you want to repeat that? I just love that. That your prayer your prayer for society just if you could rephrase that one more time and yeah, I mean, I would just say that my, I think my prayer for humanity and the prayer of the whole church is that um, they recognize, that humanity recognizes that the closer that they can get to God and specifically to Jesus Christ, that the, the less, um, the less anxiety they'll have overall because they can have confidence in a, in a steadfast, faithful God who loves them and cares them for them through second thin. So um, that, to me, is one of the blessings of the church, and it can be uniquely found in the church. And so I would urge more people to look beyond um, other needs to manage their concerns and anxieties and consider coming to church. Thank you, Jennifer Dorsey. Mother Jen, thank you so much. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> 